I'm Brad from Heinemann. Today on the podcast, something different. My father's life strategy is at the heart and soul of this book. You have to talk with people, smile, and be nice with them. From author Sarah Ahmed, we offer a story about compassion, empathy, and most importantly, identity. This is a story about being the change. Dear reader, in this book, we'll be spending time learning about our own identities and the identities of others to grow a better understanding of our place in this world. I'd like to begin that journey by sharing a story with you. On a crisp September day in 1972, a young couple from Bombay, India, deplaned at Chicago O'Hare International Airport with a few suitcases, a pair of architectural degrees, a young baby girl in tow, and visas to boot. A love marriage with a story to write. Emigrating to a suburban neighborhood of Chicago in the 1970s was an adjustment for a Muslim family from India. Their new reality was beautiful churches on the corners instead of mosques or temples and the ringing of the majestic bells in place of the azan, the melodic call to prayer. I imagine it to be a culture shock to say the least. A compassionate extrovert, my father Hamid held his own at the neighborhood and work parties he was invited to. As a Muslim, he politely refused the alcoholic drinks he was offered. Instead, he impressed them with his foxtrot and chubby checker moves he picked up back in university in India. Hamid brought a sense of community, a group of people coming together in the spirit of something bigger than themselves to every new experience. Immigrants have a beautiful way of seeking out what feels safe in a place of uncertainty. Hamid met the other Muslims in the neighboring communities of their new home, listening to their stories and their wishes, all of them in search of a place to plant their small communal roots of the bigger American dream, the opportunity to improve your life no matter who you are. My father has a contagious personality and a childlike optimism that can move mountains. He started holding prayers out of our home. Then, with the arrival of two more daughters and a growing group, they ended up renting a space at the local community center. Word spread, and they outgrew that space as well. Along the way, Hamid befriended Father Green, a reverend at a church in town. Friendship became partnership, and Father Green opened the doors of the church and the first floor to area Muslims to hold their Friday prayers. I remember it as a place where my cousins and I would listen dutifully in the summer school and then run across the street to indulge in Slurpees and nachos from 7-Eleven. That was 35 years ago. Today, through the aftershocks of 9-11, through the unsubstantiated rhetoric and fear-mongering spread by our media, through the protection of local law enforcement so worshipers can pray in peace, you can still hear the harmonized melody of the church bells and the azan. Collective calls for unity, collective sounds of trust and hope from that humble intersection of our little town. My parents had their annual trip to India planned for earlier this year. My mother canceled her trip out of fear of the stories they were hearing from others who were unable to return to the United States as a result of the new travel ban. My father still went. After all, no United States citizen should be stopped from seeing their family, right? But the muddled ambiguity of the travel ban gave rise to a new form of hysteria around us. And even after the repeals, we know that one of the last places this type of discriminatory policy leaves is in the minds and the disposition of the people who have been charged with enforcing it, and also in those who have been reached by the fear-mongering sensationalism of the media. 
The days leading up to his flight home, we all called him. We talked him through what to say if he was questioned. We reminded him repeatedly to call us when he landed and when he got his bags and again when he went through customs. We were strategizing with him as if he were doing something wrong for taking a trip and coming home. The day of his arrival, we anxiously await his text that he is safely on the ground, but it doesn't come. My mom, sisters, and I text back and forth anxiously. We confirm that the flight has landed. We try calling him, but we can't get through. Why hasn't he contacted us? Why can't we contact him? We know our father, and we know that the problem could be a simple luggage delay or a dead cell phone battery. But as the minutes turn into hours, our worries intensify. I pause to remind myself that this is an American citizen landing in America. I can't believe we are buying into the idea of criminalizing my own father for flying on an airplane and re-entering the land he has called home over 45 years. This is what fear does. Finally, my mom texts. She's heard from him, and he is fine. I called my dad later that evening to welcome him back. He shared stories about my cousins and the new babies that were born in the family. Then he paused and he said, You know, Sara, I didn't say anything to your mom or sisters because they will get upset. But they did take me in from that security customs area. All of my terror from earlier in the day came flooding back. I pulled the phone away from my face trying to regain composure before responding. I wondered about that, Dad. It took so long for you to call us. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. They just made me sit and then talked to me and asked me where I was coming from and why. I told them that I saw my family and I go every year for the last 45 years to see my brothers. Then I told the officer it was the best time to visit India if he ever wants to go. I told him the weather is beautiful. It's about 75 degrees and sunny. It's not too hot yet. I smile on the other end of the phone. My father's childlike spirit. This is so him. What did he say? Well, then the officer gave me back my passport and said, well, maybe someday I will go. Welcome home, sir. He smiled. He was a nice young man, actually, Sara. Through some silent tears, I muster the courage to ask him a question I really didn't want the answer to. What was that area like where they took you to, Dad? Well, it was just a plain hallway full of Muslims. In 2014, the Pew Center surveyed over 3,000 Americans on their familiarity of other religious groups. Of those 3,000-some respondents, 87% said they know someone who is Catholic, 61% know someone of the Jewish faith, and 38% know someone of Muslim faith. That means 62% of Americans don't know a Muslim. They have only the media to inform their opinions about Muslims. And at a time when researchers and journalists agree that Western media overwhelmingly portrays Muslims and Islam negatively, it begins to make sense why so many Americans operate in some form of fear when they hear the word Muslim or Islam or a name that they think sounds Muslim. When they gaze, then divert their eye contact from someone who carries the visibility of a hijab or headscarf or a beard. That is a lot of people who could be fearful of my father. Fearful before even getting the chance to see his baseball cap collection or play tennis with him. Or hear the story of when he met the Dalai Lama, no cameras or phones allowed. Yet when he got home, we all got this great view of his blurred thumb and the Dalai Lama's left eyebrow and ear. A hallway full of Muslims. 
That's an image I cannot unsee. My father and many others dehumanized in his own country for 40 minutes in that hallway full of Muslims. That was the first time I felt my own family's citizenship being delegitimized and how policies can render a person's humanity invisible. For the most part, my family has flown under the radar of extreme othering in America. Many of our families in education have felt the weight of it for hundreds of years, though, day after day. My father's life strategy is at the heart and soul of this book. You have to talk with people, smile, and be nice with them. He models it on a daily basis, simple and quite effective if you're lucky enough to know him. And often, the strategy works. Be kind to everyone. This year marks my 16th year as a student of the educational systems in our world. I've spent my career teaching and learning in public, urban, suburban, private, independent, charter, and international classrooms, learning the importance of getting proximate to stories along the way. We cannot progress as a society if we rely on television images, single stories, and sensationalized headlines over getting proximate to the personal experiences and personal truths of human beings who don't look like us. In his book, Minds Made for Stories, Tom Newkirk says we simply cannot translate bare numbers into recognizable human reality. Our eyes glaze over. Newkirk calls on the power of storytelling, the narrative, in order to emotionally identify with people we might see as outsiders. Doing the work of social comprehension alters the boundaries between us and them. So here I am with you today, beginning my father's story in hopes you will invite the narratives of your students into the safety of your learning environments. Together we can shift from statistics to stories in the spirit of a more inclusive world if we heed his advice and just talk with people. Because if we are listening closely, if we are being compassionate observers of the world, the stories implore us to examine and question and reflect on our own identities, whether we know it or not. My thanks to Sarah Ahmed for sharing her story with us today. This letter is the introduction to Sarah's new book, Being the Change, Lessons and Strategies to Teach Social Comprehension. We'll hear more from Sarah on the topics of social comprehension, empathy, and active listening in a future podcast. But for now, in Sarah's words, be kind to everyone. Thanks for listening.